Hello, everybody, and Kiora. Um, today's session is the second uh, in a two-part webinar series. We will continue talking about the changes made to the Guide to Road Design, Part 5, based on the 2019 update of the Australian rainoff, um, Rainfall and Runoff. In today's session, we will cover the improvements made to the regional flood frequency estimation method. Uh, we have more than 500 people registered for today's session. Thanks so much for joining us. My name is Ekaterina, I'm the Senior Communications Officer at Austroads, um, and I will be moderating today's session um, together with Chris Russell, who managed this project, um, and one of the authors, uh, Monique Ritalik. Chris and Monique will moderate the Q&A at the end of the webinar. I'd like to start uh, by acknowledging the Treaty of Waitani and Maori as the regional people of New Zealand. I also acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. Australia is based in Sydney and so today I'm on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respect to all this past, present and emerging and their deep and ongoing connection to the land. Uh, a little bit about Austroads. Uh, we are the collective of Australasian transport and traffic agencies and our focus is to support our member organisations to deliver an improved road transport network. The project that we are focusing on today was delivered under the um, Road Safety and Design Programme, which is managed by Michael Newstick. A bit of housekeeping. Um, our presenters will speak for 40 minutes and then we will have a Q&A session for 15 minutes. The slides and the guide can be downloaded from the um, handout section of your sidebar, which you will find on the right-hand side of your screen. To send us your questions for the Q&A, uh, please use the question icon on your sidebar. Um, if your question relates to any particular slide, uh, include the number of that slide in your message. That helps give context uh, to your question and helps us answer it as best as we can. Also let us know if you have any technical problems, but uh, a quick tip, if you lose sound or your picture freezes, the issue is most likely with your internet connection. So closing your browser and rejoining the session via your email registration usually helps. This session has been recorded and we will let you know when uh, the recording is available on our website. If you listen to podcasts, uh, you can find Australia in your podcast app. Um, it gives me a great pleasure to introduce our presenters for today. Uh, we will first hear from Chris Russell, who will introduce uh, the project team. Our second presenter is Dr. Bill Weeks. Bill has 50 years experience in hydrology and water resources works. Uh, he has worked in the public and private sector on road and rail projects in every state of Australia. He was the director of hydraulics uh, with the Queensland Department of Transport and Main Roads until 2040, uh, 14, sorry, and since then um, has worked as an independent consultant. After Bill, we will be joined by Mark Babister. Mark is the managing director of WMA Water. He has almost 40 years experience in floodplain management uh, and Mark is also a co-editor of the 2019 update um, of Australian rainfall and runoff. After the presentation, we will have some time uh, to answer your questions. So welcome to um, our presenters and over to you, Chris. Thanks, Ekaterina. Hi, everyone. My name's Chris Russell. As mentioned, I work for the Department of Transport and Main Roads in Queensland, and I was the project manager for Austroads for the update to Guide to Road Design Part 5, which included the improvements to the regional flood frequency estimation method. Um, the update itself was undertaken by consultants WMA Water, 
uh, represented today by Mark Babister, Dr Bill Weeks and Ms Monique Retallick. This update uh, was guided and overseen by an Australia's project working group made up of representatives from the various state road authorities, local government and Consult Australia and you can see the names and affiliations on the screen. Um, I would like to acknowledge and thank all the working group members for their effort and guidance um, for this update. Um, their efforts are greatly appreciated. Um, without further ado, I'd like to invite um, Bill and Mark uh, to lead us through the guide of the update to the regional FUD frequency estimation model. Thank you, Bill and Mark. Uh, thank you, Chris. So. Um, I'll first introduce what is the background of why we've got this regional flood frequency estimation method and what is uh, actually published in Australian Rainfall and Runoff at the moment. And then Mark will talk about the uh, the upgrade to the method. It's one of these things where there is a, uh, a big improvement on what was available previously. People then look for even more improvements and that's uh, where we're working at the moment. So the Australian Rainfall and Runoff, which was published in 2016 with an with enhancement in 2019, generally replaced the rational method with the regional flood frequency estimation method. And 2021, Austroads uh, funded a, an update to that manual to, to enhance it and to improve where there were some uh, issues with it. So the regional flood frequency estimate is uh, quick to method, they're quick to use, and can pro provide flood estimates for anywhere in Australia. It's for small to medium catchments, up to a thousand square kilometres. It only works on natural and rural catchments. So you can see there's a, immediately quite a, uh, a large area that, that is a concern because urban catchments are quite important and, um, and obviously it can't work on urban catchments, which we'll talk a little bit about the reasons for that later. Australian Rainfall and Runoff, it's included in Book 3, Chapter 3 of Australian Rainfall and Runoff at the moment, but the enhancement is going to eventually uh, update that, uh, that, book, that chapter. Uh, next slide, please. So, Australian Rainfall and Runoff 1987, that was the previous edition of Australian Rainfall and Runoff, so there was quite a long period of time uh, between when uh, 1987 when that edition was published in 2019 and obviously things had changed a lot over that period of time. So ARNR 1987, it, um, it recommended the rational method for most um, uh, 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 analyses on ungauged catchments and as um, well, one of the editors of Australian Rainfall and Runoff always said with uh, with um, uh, James Ball always said, what's what's rational about the rational method, which is probably true. Um, so it worked on catchment areas depending on the on the particular application of up to 25 square kilometres and some cases up to a thousand square kilometres on medium catchments. It was state based, so that uh, if you did a project in Tweed Hedge, you got totally different answers from what you would get if you did the a uh, project over the border in, in uh, Coolangatta, just a few kilometres away. It was often not repeatable because there were some uh, subjective decisions that need to be made when you were setting it up. And um, in most cases, it was really based on no data or very little data. So it was, um, 
the method that was available at the moment, uh, uh, and really at that time, hand calculations were the way most engineers did projects, and that was how it was uh, was developed. Uh, next slide, please. So the concerns with it, it was it varied from state to state with clear discontinuities based on very limited or no data. And um, in New South Wales and Victoria, they had a probabilistic rational method, and it was really was a sort of a regional flood frequency method, but it did have, uh, wasn't based on a huge amount of data, and the information was uh, prepared as a map. So you had to read one of the major parameters of the rational method uh, from a map. Queensland had no really, no general method based on observed flood data is uh, what was quoted in Australian rainfall and runoff. Western Australia, South Australia, they had a number of different methods depending on exactly where you were in the state. And so it was always very difficult in all of those cases to get a consistent and logical answer out of a rational method. Uh, next slide, please. The 2016 method, it was developed as part of the research projects for Australian rainfall and runoff. It was data driven and it used all of the available data that was uh, that could be found at that time. It ended up with a web-based delivery and there's a paper here uh, that's referenced and uh, that, can, uh, that gives you an outline of what was uh, done in Australian rainfall and runoff. Most of the research work for it was uh, led by Atul Rahman at the University of Western Sydney, and um, and he had a had a team of of students that did various bits as well as a team of of advisors plus uh, input from all of the states of Australia when they were working on it. So that that paper is referenced in Australian Rainfall and Runoff, and it gives an outline of what was done in 2016, which is essentially the same as what was in the uh, revised uh, ARNR in 2019. Uh, next slide, please. So what is the regional flood frequency estimation? It's a, it's a peak flood estimation technique. So it uh, only gives you peak discharges. It doesn't give you any flood hydrographs. And it is designed to provide estimates of designed floods for all locations in Australia. Some areas are a little better than others where there is more data, but it, it is, does, does work for everywhere in Australia. It's quick and easy to use, and its main purpose is to uh, provide information for ungaged catchments. Uh, next slide, please. So when you open the, um, uh, in Australian Rainfall and Runoff um, on, the, on, the, um, on their website, there is a link to the Regional Flood Frequency Estimation, and it comes up with this uh, first page. And um, it has a map of Australia. You can put your location by including the catchment outlet latitude and longitude and the centroid of the catchment latitude and longitude and the catchment area. So that's all of the data that goes into it. And there is a large database behind that that gives you uh, rainfall and, and other data that's used in the calculation. Uh, next slide, please. And, and Australia is divided into regions. And, and the first thing you notice on that map of regions is that it's not state-based. The only real state border is the one between the Northern Territory and Queensland. Um, and, um, but the East Coast, which is a, probably the most important area for the number of projects that are analysed, goes all the way from 
North Queensland right down through New South Wales and Victoria and with a little bit into South Australia. Uh, and, and that's the area of, uh, of the East Coast that has a, a mean annual rainfall of more than 500 millimetres. And then the other regions are really, the aim was to find some geographical regions where conditions were, were uh, both reasonably consistent over the region. And some of them like Tasmania is pretty clear cut. Uh, the Pilbara is really is an arid region, but because there's more stream gauges in the Pilbara than there is in the rest of the arid zone, and because of fairly important uh, economic value in the region, it had its own region. But the um, RFFE, as it was in Australian rainfall and runoff, was worked very closely on those regions. Uh, next slide, please. And this. Uh, map shows the stream gauges that were used in developing the method and um, the stream gauges they generally had to be less than a thousand square kilometers and they had to have more than 20 years of stream flow record when you look at that um, that gauge you'll see that there's not that many in the three quarters of australia that's in the arid zone there's a handful in the flinders ranges a couple near Alice springs and a few around the uh, the fringes of the uh, of the arid zone so really does depend on where the where the stream gauges are so where you've got a lot of stream gauges you can expect the result to be more reliable than it will be out in the arid zone where you don't have very many gauges at all uh, next slide please so these are the number of, of stations and you'll see that there's um uh, given in states and you see new south wales victoria queensland they've got quite a lot of gauges and and there's about 800 stream gauges um, scattered around Australia in the um, in the the area that's outside the arid and semi-arid zone. So there's there's quite a number of gauges, but considering that uh, Australia's got about nine million square kilometres, there really aren't aren't that many. And when you look at the arid zone, which is about two thirds, three quarters of Australia, there's only 55 gauges in the whole of the arid zone. Um, next slide, please. Um, and this is a little bit of information about the gauges in the arid zone, 55 of them, and you'll see that um, uh, they have a reasonable length of record. So a gauge with the longest record of 46 years, which isn't a huge length of record. I think that's the one at the Todd River at Alice Springs. So it's got a reasonable length of record, but not what you would call a fantastic length of record. Uh, next slide, please. So when you run the regional flood frequency estimation model, it um, produces a lot of results that show the, um, the calculated design flood discharges, as well as all of the data that went into it, as well as quite a bit of extra information as well. Uh, next slide. Uh, and anyway, um, it, uh, when you print the output, it, it also gives you information on what gauges have been used uh, or the neighbouring gauges to the ungauged catchment you're working on. The, the new upgraded method will look fairly similar to that, but there's a lot of uh, different information uh, in, uh, in behind the, uh, the development. So it looks really simple, but there's a lot of data behind it. And the upgraded um, method has got even more data and better quality data behind it. So I'll hand over to Mark now. Thanks, Bill. Hopefully I'm coming through all right. 
So I just want to lead you through the update and I guess we should emphasise this is not a quantum leap from what was done in the past. It's really just taking the learnings we've had in the application and leveraging some of the testing we did when we developed the previous version. So what's our approach was basically to go back to all the methods we tried in 2016 um, and retest them. But we wanted to do it in a smart way because we found out in the last couple of years that there were mistakes in some of the data. We hadn't captured enough local knowledge. So we developed a framework where we could pretty much trial the old, all the methods we tried in the past in an open framework. And we wanted to make sure practitioners had access to all the underlying data. Because I get a few emails from people saying, this station's wrong or this rating curve's wrong. And so now we can just harvest all of that feedback that we get where something's wrong or a new gauge gets, record gets a bit longer. Um, we can put those stations in or take them out because sometimes we put some stations in that shouldn't have been in as well. Um, and it's very easy to do. And the other thing we wanted to do, which is really powerful, is what we called a leave one out analysis. So to test this method, last time we just looked at how well it reproduced the stations, but it was a bit unfair because it included the station you were testing in the method. When we do a leave one out analysis, we redo the method but take out that station and say, if you didn't know about this station, how well would the method work? Um, and that's a really great test. And the other thing is we did add a combination of the previous tested methods. And I think that will become obvious in the presentation. We call it a hybrid method where we've just taken two of the methods and combined them slightly um, to get an advantage. So I'm going to go through a little bit of statistics here. and I'm going to try and keep it as simple as possible on the methods. Um, I'll try not to bore you. So we've used four basic techniques, parameter regression, quantile regression, a hybrid and a growth curve, but I'll, I'll take you through them very quickly. So um, this is a flood frequency curve. We have flow on the Y, probability on the X. And what you're doing with a parameter regression term is you're estimating the mean, which is the two year there, um, where I put the anchor, you're measuring the standard deviation. In simple terms, that means the slope of that curve, and you're estimating the skew, which is basically the curvature. You can see this one's got a slight downwards curvature, so it's got a very slight negative skew. And that's the method that's currently used. Um, now, one of the other methods we tested was called quantile regression, where we basically come up with a formula for each of the probabilities, like one in two, one in five, one in ten, one in 100 and you're estimating each of them um, independently and that works quite well but you do get some strange okay results sometimes where the increase in flow from 2 to 5 5 to 10 is a little bit unusual and so you don't always got what we call a nice growth curve that slopes up as a smooth curve like on the plot there the other technique we've used is pretty much a combination of those two we've called it a hybrid where Really, it's the same as the first one where we use the two year as the mean to anchor it. But this time we anchor it at the 10 year or one in 10. And that's because what's very clear in the earlier work and even in the old probabilistic rational method in New South Wales, they use C10 values. The thing that we can estimate most accurately is the one in 10. And so that's a great thing we use to anchor our curve. Um, and the standard deviation is skewer the same as the first method. And the last one, which we used in in um, central in the arid region in central Australia, is what's called a growth curve, where 
it was anchored at the one in 10 as well, but it just had a standard average curve. You didn't let that slope of that curve or the curvature change. And that was because in the arid region, when we first carried out the method, we knew so little about what was out there. So um, I'm, what, what did we do? Well, put some equations up. I'm not going to go through them in detail, but basically we estimate like the mean, the standard deviation, skew or whatever the method's using from a whole lot of predictive variables. And we do that in each of those different zones. So the zones are not as critical anymore. I've kept them more for reporting. Um, if there's a station nearby just over the border, we use that. Um, so we're not as rigid as we were in the past. And what we did is we applied all of the methods that we used last time, quantile regression parameter, the hybrid, which wasn't, and the growth factor. Um, and we use predictors to work out the flow. So the obvious thing, if you're estimating flow is area, we used rainfall, design rainfall, IFD. We used some catchment characteristics like the shape of the catchment, the mean elevation in the catchment. Um, we can use slope. And we looked at how much data you pull. And I guess what Bill said is one of the things that's really powerful about this method, it's simple to use, and I'll show you, but there's a lot of really smart statistics behind it and a lot of work. It uses all the information we can find. Um, and so we run those, and what we end up with is 192 models. Um, and when we do a leave one out analysis, then we have to run that basically 800, 900 times because we have to take out, type for each of those models, we have to take out the station of interest. And here's a bit on the predictive variables. Um, we use area, we use IFD or design rainfall. And the thing is with every one of these predictors, we want, other than area, we don't want you to go and look that up. We want to go and get that from some national data set to make your job easy and the method fast. The shape of the catchment, um, slope sometimes is used, elevation, and we use soil moisture as well. And slope and soil moisture and elevation weren't really used in the previous method. They really just used the first three. Um, and we've also looked at, we've used the centroid for things like rainfall. We looked at what would happen if you used the average rainfall on the catchment of the centroid. Some catchments have a fair bit of rainfall gradient, and those catchments were quite often getting lower or higher than what is expected estimates. So bring applying the method, we had to then assess what methods were best. And basically, we're looking at how well it reproduces the flood frequency analysis of the stations. And we're using three techniques. We're looking at root mean square error, which is a very common one to use, but it's got what a slight problem with root mean square error is it's how close you are to the correct answer, but it doesn't take into account whether they're all high or all low, how close you are to the, how much of the data's in the confidence limits, and whether there's bias, they're all above or all below. So um, they're out. They're our assessment techniques. The underlying data, um, this is from, from part of the visualizer, which I'll show later. All of the stations are on, on the internet. You can see the data set. You can see where the catchments are. You can see the results from the flood frequency analysis. We use a technique called Flike. And that's so people can email us and go, hey, you've got this wrong. You've got this right. There's a bit more data. There's a station nearby that you've got to include. Um, so we can improve the method in the future. And I'm still waiting for a little bit of feedback for some groups in WA and South Australia to lock in their results because they obviously know a lot more about their catchments than I do.
Catchment size, as Bill said, is one kilometre to a thousand kilometres, but we also tested just looking at the big catchments above 600 and just looking at the small catchments. And there's a marginal increase in predictive capability, but it's not enough to get super excited about. Um, but we were concerned that small catchments had a bit of a bias with the old technique. Um, leave one out analysis, which I've talked about. So the results, I'm gonna show you the new results use a leave one out analysis where we don't know about the station. And the old results um, do include those stations, but they are being compared to the current record, not the record up to 2012. So what we have here, and this is probably the main graph to understand about how reliable the method is, if the method was perfect and the data was perfect, um, then all those dots would occur on that solid um, black line. Um, now you can see there's an enormous scatter. And the up, now you're never gonna get a perfect method because the underlying data is probably not being measured correctly and the records are short. Now you would hope with, to get all of that data within those two inner lines around the black line, or at least 90% to say 90% of them are within the confidence limits. But you can see there's some points that are a really long way out. Um, so this is the current method, and I've got a bit of feedback about this from practitioners. And what I've put over the top is the revised model. Now we've done a bit of tweaking since I did this figure, but it hasn't changed substantially. You can see those blue points are much, much closer to the black line. And you don't really expect them all to be on the black line because sometimes a station might have a problem and the using information from surrounding stations is going, don't put too much weight on that. All of the other stations are telling you the answer should be a bit different. But you can see the substantial improvement with the gray marks, the gray dots being much further than the blue. So we're very happy with that. Um, this is just the same for the large catchment models. Um, there were some funny results in that. Um, you can see the red, the red points are much closer to the solid black line and generally improved. Um, we also looked at small catchments and there's a bit of improvement there probably not quite as much though. Um, now, when we look at all of the different methods, um, I've got root mean square error um, in log space here. Um, the gray line at the top is the old method. Um, it's basically the closer you are to the bottom of the page, the better, and we've got the probabilities. And you can see with whatever method you look at, the thing that you can estimate the best is the 10% or the one in 10, which is why we looked at the hybrid method. Um, each one of those techniques is doing better than the old data set and you might have to squint a bit, but there's a green line underneath the purple line. One's the hybrid and um, one's the QRT, um, the quantile regression. So they've done best, they've got the least error. So this is in, in zone one, this is in zone two, Zone one's the, the east coast of Australia. Um, zone two, you get the same thing here where the green or the purple's the best. Um, in this particular zone, um, the parameter regression is slightly better, but there's not much in it. On this zone, um, the red does quite well, but the purple's not too bad. The, and, and in this zone, the purple and the green are very good. And in this zone, the, um, the red is just so bad, it's a bit hard to get a clear picture here, but I can tell you the green and the purple are the best. And 
um, in the last zone, we get the same thing where the green and the purple are the best. Um, the quantile regression, the red always gives the same result at 10% because it's anchored at the same point. Um, so all we've really done is apply the methodology with, with, with a few more stations and a slightly longer records and set it up in a way that we can um, test it very robustly and got much better results. Um, in terms of how it's delivered, the same as Bill showed before, it's a web delivery system. And what I might do is just go straight to the web and show you that. Um, um, so the first thing we have here, this is the visualizer for all of the data so everybody can see exactly what um, stations were used. And further down here is all the details and what happens, where the station is. You can get the catchment area, you can zoom in and out. And so that will allow users to give me feedback on whether we've got any stations wrong. The method, um, might go here first. This shows you the same, very similar to the old method. All you need to know to use this method and the, pre, and the older version is the location of the outlet. That's where you want the peak flow estimate, the centroid of the catchment, and the area of the catchment. And we've got a map so you can zoom in and this particular catchment shown in, in blue because that means the shape is quite plausible. If you'll make your catchment way too long and skinny, like I just did then, it goes red, it's saying that catchment shape is unlikely, statistically unlikely, could be true, but 90% of catchments um, have a certain shape, which is basically they've got a ratio of around about one to two width versus length and you put the catchment area in. That's all you need to do, all the smart stuff's done by the software and the method developers, um, and you just hit run. Um, now, it can take a bit longer than the old method because it's doing a few more things, um, and fortunately it's worked. Um, and so you get a whole lot of diagnostic information and a few pictures. This is showing the catchment that I've picked hypothetically as a sphere, but you can actually put the actual catchment shape in. Um, it doesn't really make much difference, but there's some occasions when it does. The same data as before, it's told you what method it thinks is best, um, with some confidence limits, and put the flows and their confidence limits in as well. They tend to be a little bit tighter than the previous version, and it also tells you about all of the nearby stations. Um, for different probabilities. So we can zoom in on this map and see where we are. It shows us the nearby stations. We can find out data about those and it compares flow on this one's flow versus area for the nearby stations. And we have some other graphs that look at the rainfall intensity um, and some of the predictors. So it's pretty simple to use. Um, and I use it all the time on review work. The first thing I do when somebody asks me, is that flow reasonable? I jump on here because it's so quick to use, um, whether it's the old version or the new version. I'll just go back to the presentation. Right. Okay, so we saw some output. Um, let's talk about where you can access this. So at the moment, it's on a temporary web address at rffe-2021.wmawater and the underlying data is at ffa.wma. But the plan is once we go through and finalise it, it will be moved across to RFFE at 
2021.ARNR might change that to 22 or 23. Um, and I expect there'll be occasional updates, particularly once we get some feedback from Western Australia and South Australia and which stations to take out and put in. Um, Just a comment on this. It, it, it looks very similar to the old previous uh, version, but it's uh, obviously got a big improvement on what's behind it. And 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 it's deceptively simple when you run it. You think there's not much there, but there's a lot of calculations in behind this. And um, and it really is uh, something that has to be done online. It can't be done any other way. All right, thanks very much, um, Bill and Mark. Um, let's now get into Q&A. We've, we've had quite a few questions come through, um, so we'll, we'll start working our way through those and see how we go. Uh, question number one is about the Northern Territory. Um, and the question is, what about Northern Territory? A lot of the Northern Territory falls under the arid region, which does not have enough data to provide any information. What's the best solution to undertake hydrological assessment in these situation, in situations? And does the updated guide include guidance on how to address this? So, so the original method did have results for the arid region, but um, they weren't too reliable. And so we turned them off. We put in there, when you clicked in the arid region, it said, send us an email, tell us what you're doing. And if you know what you're doing, we'll send you the results. Um, we're a lot more confident about the arid region now. So we've left that on, so you will get some results. But you know, if there is no data um, or you're a long way from the station, and that picture that Bill showed earlier on showed there's places in Australia where it's about four or 500 kilometres to near a stream gauge, um, you know, you're going to be challenged in coming up with an estimate and you're going to probably have to apply some other techniques. There's also places in the arid region where it's really hard to know which way the stream's going to, the water's going to flow um, some of it's very, very flat, and I don't know, Bill, you want to add something on that? Yeah, I, I think in the Northern Territory, you've, you've got a, a, a collection of gauges in the Alice Springs area, which are reasonably good. Um, once you get away from the Alice Springs area, there's a line of stream gauges probably along the Stewart Highway, which are variable quality. So um, I think wherever you are, in the Northern Territory and elsewhere in the arid zone, you really need to look at uh, what data there is. And when you uh, look at the, the nearby catchments, when you run the um, run the model and just see where they are, are they similar to your catchment? And, and often it's a good idea to, to run it as an alternative method with a rainfall-based method using the runoff routing model, for example. Again, they're ungaged catchments in a region where there's no calibrated rainfall runoff models either, but when you've got two different um, two different methods, the rainfall out in the arid zone probably isn't isn't too bad, not as good as where there's a lot of gauges, but it's not too bad. Um, so when you run two alternative methods, a look at those, and where you've got, you know, if you're upgrading a, a, a bridge on a road, um, you, you've probably got some history on that. So that gives you a bit of an idea if it's been there for 20 years, the bridge has never been underwater, that can help you just get in the right right area. So the arid zone, you've got to, it, it's not really a simple formula. Well, it's not a simple formula anywhere. You've got to um, 
you use whatever information you have, but it's even more important in the arid zone. And, you know, there's a mining company there that's got a gauge that's they just use for their own data. Um, they could send us the data and we could pop it in. It's really that simple. Um, and we know, well, there's lots of places in there where there's no data because there's nothing there, but there are places where there are some stream gauging or some monitoring carried out for mining sites and for other purposes. And it's yeah, probably... Mining, uh, uh, gauging stations and mines, uh, you've got to look at them carefully because they're likely to be at a waste dump or a diversion channel or something yeah. like that. So you've got to make sure that they are on natural catchments. Catchments, yeah. And the other thing is in the arid zone is that you can only put a gauge where there's something that very much resembles a creek system. Um, so there are lots of places where, because it rains so seldomly, it's not really that clear what the catchment is. And so that means that probably what we've got here is more of an overestimate because it's only on locations that look like a more formal creek system. And I know, Bill, when you did the Northern Territory Railway Line, you were unclear sometimes which way the water was going to flow. Yeah. It really depended where, where it rains. Back probably about 20 years ago, I worked on the Alice Springs Darwin Railway uh, looking at the floods for that. And, and there were definitely places there where no one had ever seen water in those creeks. So um, there was really no local information. And, and when you go through those gauges, there is, um, they're, they're, they're variable quality, but you do really need to think about it a lot more than you do where you, don't, where you can just plug in the data and, uh, and assume it's going to be okay. Okay, all right, thank you. Uh, next question, in reference to slide 31, uh, is land use taken into account for the RFFE model, e.g. Forests, reforestation, etc. Okay, so thank you for the question for, for someone from WA. Um, <laughs> the answer is at the moment no, but when the WA people give me the land use or the percentage forest for those catchments, we will stick them in as a predictor. Um, and from what they tell me, it should actually make a substantial improvement to the estimates over there. Um, for those people who are not from WA like me, they have very deep soils. And when you have forests, it, it affects the, the soil profile for moisture. And because they've got deep soil, it takes a lot of rainfall to get runoff. Um, yep. And it's quite a critical predictor over there. I, I think land, land use is important everywhere. Um, but I think it, it's probably a little bit more obvious in WA than it is elsewhere. But anywhere in Australia, land use does come into it. But um, the idea is hopefully if you've got a good representative set of catchments, you're going to get a representative type uh, average land use. And that's part of the reason why there's such a big scatter of the points. Hmm. Yep. Okay, thank you. Next question. Uh, can you please describe, explain what the root mean square log error <laughs> value represents in the series of plots presented, e.g. a standard error, a log of percentage, question mark, question oh, so mark. So the first thing is, whenever we do any of this, being engineers, we often work in log space because it makes the numbers smaller and compresses the values. So all of the graphs I showed weren't the actual values that are in log space. Like when we do a flood frequency curve on the Y scale, we often have a log scale on the Y. Um, so we're in log space for the data, the flows, they're just logged. And then root mean square error um, is just a simple way of adding up all of the errors um, 
basically you square all the errors and then you take the square root of them and add them together and take the square root of them in simple terms. And what that means is if something's a long way out, it punishes you. If something's very close, it rewards you. And so you get you, you get a lot more, dis, you, you get disadvantaged for having some results a long way out versus having a few results very close. And it's trying to move the bulk of your data as close as possible. So it's a good measure of how far the bulk of your data is from the preferred answer. So it's a, a quantitative measure of what the scatter is on a uh, on a line on, on the line graph. Yep. The yep. one problem with it is you could have one method that's got some above and some below, and another method where they're all above but a bit closer. Um, and now, if they're all above, it's probably not a big deal. But imagine if they're all below but a bit closer, then you're systematically underestimating, and that's one of the problems with root mean square error. It's a good measure of how well it's working but it doesn't really measure if there's a bit of a gross under or overestimation bias. If every, every point is 10% over, it will be perfect, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's got to be the 45, and that's where the bias uh, correction and other, other statistics come into it. Yep. Thank you. Uh, next question. Um, are the confidence limits 5th percentile and 95th percentile? Yes. <laughs> Excellent. That was an easy one. <laughs> Which, but, 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 you know, it's a good question from someone because they're presented as 90% confidence limits. That's 90% with 5% either side. And it confuses me. It confuses everybody else. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there's a few statistical questions about how those confidence limits are worked out. So <laughs> I'm not sure how reliable they are because it depends on the data quality that goes into it as well as a statistical analysis. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, good question. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, next question. This is about someone who wants to help. Uh, if I found an issue with one of the gauges used and updated the rating curve with a 2D model, can you use my information to update the method? It, that's what we want to do. Um, we, you know, that's, that's one of the areas where we know we can get significant improvements, improving the ratings. Um, and NGPA's National Committee on Water Engineering has got a project on that. Um, we'd like to see all of those questionable ratings modelled in two-dimensional models. For those people who don't know what we're talking we have to we measure height and we have to turn it into flow. Um, and that means in the past, somebody went out there during a flood and measured the flow um, in the old days with basically a propeller meter. And we use that to turn height into flow. But they never got out there in the big floods. And if it's a small catchment, you never get out there before the peak because you don't get much time. But with a 2D model and some gaugings, we can get a much better rating curve. And I think that's where we'll get the next big improvement, which is why we've set up this framework so stations can be improved. And one thing that we did when we developed this method, everyone that looked a bit unusual, it was a long way out, we went and had a look at the station. And lots of them, it was pretty clear that the rating was questionable. And I think a 2D model's good, but even if you just use a, a, a 1D model or, a, or even a, a Manning's equation at the, at the gauge, it's going to often be an improvement on the published rating curve. Yeah, we, we found some that were gauged only up to the two-year flow, um, and that means they were in bank, and that curve was just extrapolated. Um, now, that's not going to give you a good estimate. Um, well, if you did what Bill said, by looking at the cross section, you get a much better estimate. 
Okay. Okay, next question. Uh, 2022 saw record rainfalls in many parts of Eastern Australia. Has any of this latest data been used in the RFFE update? Uh, no, in a, that's a good question. Yes, it should be. And it would probably change things um, because that map of stations um, that we put up, pretty much the whole east coast of Australia. Now now we've got major floods in, in, in Pilbara or north of the Pilbara, but um, in parts of WA, we've had flooding in Tasmania, flooding in Victoria. Um, so it's highly likely that um, quite a few of those flood frequency curves would go up. Yeah. I guess the longer the period of record, the less impact it's going to have. Yep. Yeah. Yep. No, very good. Thank you. Um, how frequently will the data behind the method be updated? Well, I guess that's a decision for the for Engineers Australia's National Committee and the ARNR group. But I would like to see it get updated every couple of years. It might be that some region we don't update, but it might be that we've it's like it's, it's quite easy to update the method in basically we say which stations are in or out and what are their flow values we hit a button and come back the next day and all the graphs and everything else is produced but you don't want to update a method every year or every all the time people want a bit of certainty so i would suspect every year or two or if there's a major issue um but if somebody did a big study in queensland and said look we've we've had a bit <laughs> a look at all these stations we've identified these ones have we can have, we've now got better rating curves, or we'd probably update it in Queensland. Yeah, yeah, okay, thank you. Um, so the method is for rural catchments greater than one kilometre squared. What method do we use for urban catchments or, or catchments less than one kilometre squared? Ah, tough question. Okay, so the, first, the second part of that is easy enough. I think you can use it for less than one square kilometre, but you not so sure how good it is, urban catchments, because it depends on stream gauging and historically stream gauges have been placed where water agencies feel they need stream gauges and that doesn't include urban catchments. So uh, councils, I, I know Queensland probably better than anywhere else, but Queensland, um, Brisbane City, Gold Coast, all of those councils do have stream gauges, but they're really measuring levels rather than then uh, flows, and you do need flows. You can do a model to calculate flows, but then you need a long period of record and you need that record to be homogeneous. It can't be changing over time. So if it's on an urban catchment where the level of urban development has changed over time, um, it's not really suitable for the long-term uh, uh, statistical analysis. So urban catchments are difficult. So I guess the the issue with urban catchments, you need to use a, a rainfall-based method of uh, runoff routing or, or rainfall on grid type methods in those and um, and do what you can for calibration, which is probably not that fantastic in most cases. So use this as a sanity check. If you've got an urban catchment, then this answer should be less than what you get from your rainfall runoff modelling. Yep, yep, okay, thank you. Uh, next question, are there areas where the method doesn't perform uh, as well and we should target for installing gauges? Um, yes, um, look, look. So pick zone one, which is the coastal strip from Queensland down to Victoria. It works really well in the coastal strip where it's very data rich. 
But as you go inland, and particularly in parts of Queensland um, and a few bits of New South Wales, um, we get clusters that it doesn't perform very well. But it, we also, when we drill into those clusters, it's not as, because it uses that data, we also see that the data seems a bit contradictory in those states, in some of those areas as well. I, I would think you get your most bang for your buck by looking at the inland stations where the data is sparse um, and filling in some gaps in there. Once you go inland in New South Wales and Queensland, there, there are stream gauges out there, but they're on big catchments, which don't really help that much. If you're doing a, a culvert on a, on a highway out near Kanamala, and it's not, not on, the, um, on the major river, uh, you, you do need a, um, a method out there, so you do need those small catchments. But installing gauges, I, I know Eng Engineers Australia has um, made submissions to the government on lots of occasions, and individuals have made submissions to the government regularly about stream gauging, but um, doesn't seem to be a high priority for the government to do it. Um, but if you go out tomorrow and install some stream gauges to do something useful like this, you do need enough record to do statistical analysis on it. So you're not going to, if you record one or two floods, that's not really going to help you that much until you've got probably at least 10, 10 years of record out there. Yeah, there we, we do know though that there are places where there are stream gauges, but there's no rating. Um, there's a few spots like that. And if somebody developed a rating curve with a 2D model, then we could probably use those. Those gauges are generally not owned by the water authorities, normally owned by councils um, and other authorities. Mm -hmm. And I think you just answered another question then, which someone's asked about what's the minimum length uh, you can use in the method for the stream gauge record. And I think, Bill, you indicated at least 10 years, yes? I think the method is based on 20 years. And I know yeah. back in the 2016 ARNR, they did some investigations using 10, 20, you know, 50 years of record. And, you know, the longer the record you insist on, the fewer the number of gauges. If you've got, if you want more gauges, you decrease the length of record and then your reliability goes down. So 20 years is a reasonable, uh, um, you know, reasonable idea. But if, you know, if you've got 10 years, it's better than no years. So even a couple of years yeah. is better than nothing. Yeah. We originally yeah. decided we wanted 30 years of data or 35, but the harsh reality was we had to blow it down to 20 just so we had enough spatial coverage. Um, but the, the number of years of record is is one of the factors in the method. It look when it when it looks at surrounding stations, they're weighted by their record length. So it takes into account a station with a longer record is much more reliable than a station with a short record. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you. Now here's one to stretch your mind a little bit. Uh, could any simple expansion on soil moisture and antecedent catchment conditions, for example, wet year, dry year, and how those uh, are it be incorporated into the model? Yeah, so we spent a lot of time trying to use that. So the Bureau's got a product, a model called Aura-L, and one of the parts of that is it looks at soil moisture and it models every day soil moisture, and I might be the numbers wrong, but from about 1909. So we have a good idea of the long-term soil moisture and we have a good idea of what the soil moisture is before flood events as well. Um, and there is some room for some improvements there currently doing a project in New South Wales where we've been looking at that and that will certainly help with future estimates. Um, yep. 
but it, yep. it's also tied a little bit to the storm mechanism. So in some places they get storms in different times of the year as well, and you have to take that seasonal component into account. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay, thank you. Um, next question, can paleo flood records be useful data for RFFE? Well, yes. So like, um, because it uses the flood frequency analysis um, as the as the data input. So if, if you if you do flood frequency analysis and you include some paleo records and you get a you get an estimate of the flood frequency curve using paleo information, that can go in as well. Um, but normally you would use it if you've got you use the RFFE and then if you've got some you know paleo records or or just old historical records from hundred years ago that can just help you uh, keep it in the right uh, right ballpark. Yep. Um, is rational method still useful as a sanity check for small rural catchments, do you think? Okay, well I'd say for very small rural catchments, um, it's probably not too bad. Um, it's an, it's an interesting question you raise. What, what we find when we compare the rational method to RFFE is most of the time the RFFE is a much more reliable estimate. But when it goes wrong, it can, it can be quite wrong. The rational method is not a good estimate, estimation of flow, but it actually can't go too wrong. Um, and on small catchments, there's very little data anyway. Um, so I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't suggest you don't use it as long as you use some other methods as well. Um, I think no, no one's done an actual. Not that I know of, done an actual study, but I, I sort of have a feeling that in Queensland, the Queensland rational method always tended to overestimate floods rather than underestimate, and everyone's happy with that apart from the people who have to pay for the infrastructure. So if you overestimate your entire flood, your culvert doesn't over top as often as it might otherwise, so people feel happy about it. Whereas normally if you do have a proper stream gauging, um, you, you are likely to uh, you know, probably represent the flows a lot better, whereas a rational method, I think they make a couple of assumptions, conservative assumptions in it. So there, I think there is a bit of a tendency to overestimate design floods when using the rational method. One. Yeah. One additional thing that's worth thinking about, though, is because the input for all of this is completely going to be available for everyone, somebody could come up with a better method, right? Um, or try something different. Um, and so I'm hoping by making that data available, you know, we'll get a better technique. Um, and just to support what you say, Bill, I've heard a number of people say, show me the piece of infrastructure that's undersized because of the rational method. And I, I think that's spot on. <laughs> okay, next question. Um, why are the confidence limits so large? Um, you know, e.g. 600 QMEX is very different to 7,600 QMEX in the example quoted. <laughs> yeah, look, look I, I, I think this is a good question. So the first thing is, and, and I think a lot of people don't appreciate the most reliable method, if you have data, is flood frequency analysis using outside data. And whenever you do that, you get quite wide confidence limits. And what you need to understand is any other method will have wider confidence limits. It's just we don't produce them because it's very complex. Um, so people think rainfall runoff methods are reliable, but they're less reliable than flood frequency. Um, just you don't get confidence limits to tell you that. 
Now, this method, because it pulls data, is being completely honest about the confidence limits. Um, and so they are quite wide. Um, and I think rainfall runoff methods would probably be more reliable than RFFE, except where you have quite a strong high data density. Um, but we always just ignore confidence limits unless they're right in front of us. I think the idea of confidence limits, I think the ARNR 1987 really didn't give much of an understanding of uncertainty. And I think it is pretty important that at least people have to bear that in mind. And when you're arguing about a afflux of 10 millimetres, um, just think what's the, uh, the base number that you're comparing it with. So you need to keep that uncertainty in your mind. And uh, what you do with it, it's hard to decide what you do with it, but you need to realise all along that there is a lot of uncertainty in these answers. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you. Um, when can you be confident and or justify that your design flow from a RORB2 flow exercise is correct, reasonable, if it differs from the, re the median flow rate coming out of RFV? Yes. But there could be there could be lots of reasons why it differs and why RORB or, or two flow or something's more accurate. Um, if there's a huge amount of storage in a, in a reach of river, or an enormous floodplain, or um, something like that, or or there's a structure, um, then um, a two flow model is going to give you a much better estimate of the flow. Um, or if you're in an arid region, it could be that as you move further and further down the system. There's, there's more infiltration. So there are, there are places where RFFE is quite accurate and there are places where doing some modelling is a better way to do it. Um, and I think unfortunately, two methods will give you two answers. Yeah. I think especially where there is a lot of floodplain storage. I, I know I've used examples in explaining these things up at the Binder Creek at the Boulders in North Queensland, but upstream of the Binder Creek, you get quite sharp, peaky floods. A couple of kilometres downstream, the catchment is actually bigger, but the peak flows are considerably smaller because of the um, of the attenuation and the floodplain storage. And I think that will happen in a lot of locations. And obviously, the RFFE doesn't account for that, whereas a hydraulic model does. Mm. Yep. Yep. No, thank you. Uh, can you please provide more explanation on how and when you'd use the upper confidence level? Uh, the example for 1% AEP shows the expected at 372 and the upper at 1333. Again, just a, a, a bit more unpacking when you'd use the upper limit. Oh, I'm going to hope Bill answers this one. This is a hard one. Oh, I'd, I'd say that. <laughs> I, I guess, guess Chris is the one that can probably answer that better than, than any of us because he's uh, representing a, a client's organisation and um, and, and you know, what, what do you do it with? And I guess one of the things you do a sensitivity analysis and say, well, okay, your best estimate is this. What happens if, is it going to be a major disaster if you're 10% or 20% higher than that? Um, what what is, the, uh, what is the impact on the infrastructure or impact on the environment with that. And um, so I, th I think it's it's um, it's really what, what is the risk profile and uh, what sort of risk are you willing to take? And that was exactly the answer I was gonna give Bill, that I do a sensitivity analysis and, and really mm. try and understand what it means. Um, so yeah, well, well answered. 
uh, I, I would have said exactly the same thing. If you have a look at those diagnostic graphs too, I think they are a good way to look at the confidence limits. If you look at your 1% estimate versus catchment area for the surrounding stations, you can decide whether some of those, um, that upper com how plausible that upper confidence limit is. And maybe we should have put that on the graphs as an upper and lower bar. Yep. All right. Uh, next question. What's the process by which RFFE can be kept updated and how can industry uh, support this? Um, so it, it, it's a bit vague at the moment, but the idea is once that that underlying FFA web page, people will be able to download all of the data and send in um, if they think we've got it wrong or the rating's different. Um, We'll write some guidelines which basically says if you want to send us a new flood frequency analysis, you will have to do a few things. Um, for some of the techniques like parameter regression, um, you have to use the same um, distribution of where you've used. You can't send us a GUV if that method's been developed on an LP3, um, log PSN3 distribution. But if people should be able to send in that data and, and it will get assessed by somebody and if people think there's merit in it, particularly I think with rating curves, that's where the big wins. I think that the question, Chris, is say, well, you send it in, but who do you send it into? That's right. <laughs> I guess that's, uh, that's the hard part. It was um, obviously it needs some organisation to manage this, and whether that's Australia or Engineers Australia, or Geoscience Australia, whoever, whoever that is, you need some management manager for it, and you also need some funding for it, and then you need someone that's uh, that's willing to. Um, to do that work. I think the update of Australian Rainfall and Runoff relied on a lot of, um, of donated time by, by a lot of people, as well as a lot of funding for funded research projects as well. So it, it is a big uh, a big, issue, big issue, and I guess it's not exactly clear who, what organisation can, can do this. Obviously, Austroids is an important user of both the RFFE, or the Austroids organisations, important user of of the RFFE and, and Australian Rainfall Runoff um, to represent road authorities, but then there's councils and, and a lot of mining companies, uh, agricultural organisations, a lot of other organisations that need it. But uh, who, who is going to manage this and fund it? And, and that's that's a question that's not very clear. No, thank you. Now, I think Ekaterina is trying to indicate to us that our question time might be running out. <laughs> So, uh, because of the slide that she's popped up there. So, and Ekaterina, we, um, we have just answered all the questions we've got. So, I think we've timed it spot on. Yeah, I think we still have a few, which we will probably do after the session, but- um, In writing yeah, I guess, afterwards, yeah. yeah there's, there's some similar yeah. ones there, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, time to wrap up, unfortunately. Uh, thanks so much, everyone. Mark, Bill, Chris, uh, thanks for uh, being with us. Uh, thanks um, uh, for sharing your invaluable knowledge and experience with our audience. It's been fantastic. Um, I only have a couple of slides uh, to finish uh, before we let everyone go. Um, our future webinars, um, uh, people might be particularly interested in the session we are running on the 7th of March. Uh, we will focus on the project that updated the current uh, Austroids road deterioration models. Um, those improved models uh, can predict the impact of the wider loading and climate uh, conditions observed in Australia. So for more information on all of our sessions, uh, please visit our website.
Um, after we close out today's session, a questionnaire will pop up on your screen. Uh, please take a couple of minutes to send us your feedback. Uh, it really helps us to know what you liked or didn't like about the session and what suggestions you have for future webinars. Um, once again, today's session has been recorded and we will send you the link to the recording uh, when it's published on our website. Thanks again, everyone. Stay well and safe uh, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you.